So, welcome to you. Uh, let me have my welcome to Ellen's and uh, to those who've joined us on the live stream. Good to have you with us. Are you up for a story? Some of you are good. There never was a salesman quite like Terence Rigger. Terence Rigger knew every trick of the trade and more besides. And he used all of his guile and experience to maximum effect. Not a day went by when Terence couldn't be seen with his horse and cart and his unending supply of bottles of pleasure. It's not a funny story. <laughs> Ashley was well acquainted with Terence Rigger, as was everyone in Ashley's circle of friends. There was no hiding from him. There were places where you could avoid him for a while, to be sure, but Terence Rigger always caught up with you in the end. Now, Ashley had two ever-present companions. Deirdre Zaya was the fun, energetic, enthusiastic, life-of-the-party sort, without whom existence would have been colourless and flat. There was no time to think when Deirdre Zaya was on the move. It was a roller coaster ride for Ashley when she took the reins. She wanted a good time, and she wanted it now. But she often got Ashley into trouble. <coughs> Ashley's other constant companion was Charles Heck. Now, Charles was everything that Deirdre wasn't. He was serious and thoughtful. Deirdre would say he was boring. Charles Heck was Ashley's cool voice of reason. When Deirdre said, now, Charles cautioned Ashley to stop and think. When Deirdre said, just go with your feelings, Charles advised Ashley to consider things carefully and logically. And so it was that whenever Terence Rigger's voice was heard plying his trade, Ashley was often pulled in opposite directions. Sometimes at the very sound of Terence's voice, Deirdre would grasp Ashley's hand, and before Charles could get a word in, Ashley was out uh, on the street trading. At other times, Charles stood in Ashley's way and heard him out, and Ashley heard him out. On those occasions, Ashley might be persuaded to stay in or Deirdre's urgings might carry the day. Occasionally, a heated argument arose between Charles and Deirdre, and Ashley was convinced first one way and then the other. And now and again, Charles would smile and say to Ashley, buy yourself a bottle, enjoy it but just the one, okay? And so it was that on this sunny day, when all was calm in Ashley's house, a familiar voice came barreling down the street. Terence Riggers, bottles of pleasure. Let me remind you what we are doing this autumn. So we are part way through our Holy Math series. And Peter has written that if we possess certain qualities in increasing measure, they will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive 
in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in previous weeks, we've explored the foundation of faith and uh, on which everything else depends and the first two qualities of goodness and knowledge. So this morning, we consider self-control and the ability to delay gratification and to resist temptation has been a fundamental challenge since the dawn of civilization. Central to the Genesis story of Adam, of course, Adam and Eve's temptation by the snake in the Garden of Eden. By the way, if the snake had been good at maths, it might have been an adder. You were waiting for it, weren't you? Come on, be honest. Or, or it might have been a python. Oh, two in one there, Ellen, two in one. But anyway, coming back to self-control... There are three questions that I think we need to address. First of all, why is self-control so important in the first place? Secondly, why is self-control so difficult? And then thirdly, how can I add self-control to my faith? So let's begin with the first question. Why is self-control so important? And the answer lies in a proverb. Proverb, Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through, is a person who lacks self-control. So a city's walls were, of course, its primary means of defence, break through those walls, and perhaps the destruction of the city was in sight. Bit of a melodramatic analogy, maybe? But I wonder... How many marriages have been destroyed by lack of self-control? How many careers have been destroyed by excessive alcohol consumption? How many relationships have been damaged beyond repair by an angry word? How many head injuries sustained, bones broken, even lives lost in a moment of unpremeditated violence. So if you lack self-control, you place yourself at risk and you place others at risk too. And even if the consequences aren't as severe as the few I've mentioned, they can still be very damaging. So who here doesn't regret a moment in the past when they've drunk too much, eaten too much, Spoken too soon, spent too much, wasted too much time, given up too soon. We've all got stories of lack of self-control. And even if we haven't brought serious destruction on ourselves or on others, we've at the very least sabotaged our own goals. So that's why self-control is so important. But why is it so difficult? And the reason lies in what it means to be a fallen human being. So in simple terms, there are two areas of our brain that compete for governance of our will. 
So the first is, is the limbic system, a collection of structures in our brains that regulate our basic things like hunger and fear and sex and anger. It's the bit of our brain that mobilizes us for action. And it does so automatically. So if you see a lion in the street, unlikely, I accept, granted, but if you see a lion in the, in the street, you will automatically feel fear. Or if at the end of the service you go out and you see there's a dent in your car that wasn't there when you parked it first thing, you won't need someone to tell you to be upset. You will be upset. It's automatic. It happens instinctively. That's your limbic system. Then the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that has a big say in planning and decision-making and problem-solving and self-control. So if the limbic system shouts, whoa, there's a lion in the street, the prefrontal cortex says, hang on a minute, let's think about this sensibly. Oh, no, that's Andy dressed as a lion. <laughs> or when you find your, your, the dent in the door, the limbic system you know, wants kind of revenge and anger and, and upset, and the prefrontal cortex says, OK, let's just calm down a moment. Let's be practical. We can fix this. We can sort this out. To put it more simply still, each one of us has a Charles Heck and a Deirdre Zire competing for our choices. If Deirdre runs the show, Ashley is inviting disaster. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. So in, so in Terence Rigger, comes a calling, why doesn't Ashley just tell him to clear off? Why doesn't Ashley just listen to Charles? Why is self-control so difficult? And there are a whole host of reasons. First of all, Deirdre is always the first off the mark. Terence Rigger's bottles of pleasure are really nice, at the time at least, although sometimes they can have an unpleasant aftertaste. Sometimes Ashley is tired or low and just can't face listening to another debate between Deirdre and Charles. Every time Ashley says yes to Deirdre, she gets a little stronger and a little more persuasive. Deirdre is so much more fun to listen to than Charles. And frankly, sometimes we'll just collude with Deirdre and rationalize or justify her suggestions. And these are some of the reasons why self-control is so difficult. And Paul recognizes this in 1 Corinthians and chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. 
They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I don't run like someone running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. So some of the things Paul is saying here is that self-discipline isn't for the faint-hearted. It's tough. It's challenging. It doesn't come naturally. But there's a reward at the end of it. And that's another reason why self-control is so important. Because if Charles gets to speak, Ashley will hear the arguments for taking a longer-term view. Ashley will hear Charles explain why delayed gratification is usually better than instant gratification. Ashley will be reminded of the prize. So the question is, how does Charles get to have his say? And we come to our third and final question. How can I add self-control to my faith? And it begins with a foundation of faith. So Paul writes to Titus, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. So as we often say from the front here, faith is an active, trusting response to God's grace. Faith grasps with gratitude what God has done. Now, you can have self-control without faith. We'll come to that shortly. But for Peter and for you, if you are a believer, it begins with faith. You are to make every effort, as Robbie read to us from the passage, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control. So it begins with faith. But faith, faith also grasps with, attitude, with gratitude what God will do, not just what he has done, but what he will do. Faith is willing to wait, fixing its eye on the reward. So Paul continues in the same passage to Titus, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So faith is willing to say no to pleasure now in the hope of receiving so much more later. The crown that will last forever that Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 9. And this is at the heart of self-control. Deirdre wants her pleasure, she wants it now, but Charles counsels Ashley to wait for something better to come. Dieters will be familiar with the phrase, I'm sure, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the hips. And that kind of sums it up, really. Deirdre wants her sugar rush now, but Charles has an eye on longer-term health. And faith encourages Charles, empowers the prefrontal cortex by presenting a future vision. 
the delayed reward, the well done, good and faithful servant spoken by Jesus at the end of time for those who've stewarded what God has entrusted to them for the glory of God. So faith and hope. And then thirdly, faith also enlightens Charles to redirect Deirdre's desire. Now, the Stoic philosophers of the first century would have encouraged you to develop a sense of detachment from desire. If you can distance yourself from desire, they would have said, then you're less vulnerable to it, which is true. But life without desire is colourless. The answer is not to attempt to kick Deirdre out of the house, even if that were possible, but rather to educate Deirdre to desire different things. And faith cooperates with God in this, following Paul's instruction to the Philippians. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God works in you to will, to want what he wants. Well, how does he do that? Well, he does that as we practice spiritual disciplines like reading God's word, the Bible, so that we see what delights God and what displeases him. He does that through spiritual disciplines like prayer as we align our hearts to his. <clears throat> Faith, hope, and redirected desire, and to those we must add awareness. We need to grow in awareness of our weaknesses and the contexts in which we lose self-control. Let's take King David as an example. So in many areas of his life, a person of great self-control. He knew how to fast. He knew how to endure hardship. He had the diligence to become an excellent musician and ruler. But he had some weak spots, didn't he? Did he really not know that walking around on the roof of his palace, he might catch a glance, a glimpse of the beautiful Bathsheba having a bath? And David illustrates that we can be self-controlled in some areas, but not in others. And we've got plenty of modern-day examples of this. So in sport, for example, top, top athletes like the cyclist, Lance Armstrong, or the golfer, Tiger Woods, they had to exercise self-control to reach the top of their sports. But they both crashed through a lack of self-control in different areas. So we've got to know ourselves and where we are individually weak. And we've also got to learn the context in which we are particularly vulnerable. And again, this will be different for each one of us. So we're more vulnerable in certain states, when we're hungry, or tired, or sad, or stressed, when Deirdre's whispers become shouts for attention. We're more vulnerable around certain people, those who trigger anger in us, or anxiety, or irritability, or arousal. 
We're more vulnerable in certain places. So if you've got a weakness for alcohol, the pub is a dangerous place for you. Now, none of this is to say we should always avoid these states, these people, or these places. Perhaps sometimes we shouldn't. But we need to know ourselves and the context in which we are particularly weak and vulnerable. And not to place ourselves unnecessarily in situations of temptation. And then lastly, for today at least, it's the Holy Spirit who makes the difference. But before we get to the Holy Spirit, a digression of sorts. So I want to describe a tennis player to you. As a teenager, he would go into the city and play video games at the arcade until it closed at one o'clock in the morning. Then he went home and carried on playing his games. Sometimes he'd play them until five o'clock in the morning. He was addicted. He destroyed about 50 rackets in his career in his frustrated lack of self-control. You know who I'm describing, don't you? Roger Federer. Roger Federer. Now, Helen's been reading his biography lately, so um, thanks to her for this background information, to one of the most self-controlled, gracious, balletic tennis players ever to grace a tennis court. The Holy Spirit works in us to produce the fruit of self-control. We will come to that shortly. But I mention Roger Federer for two reasons. Firstly, to make the point that the Holy Spirit's work is not incompatible with the strategies that any person can use to add self-control to their life. And also to make the point that self-control is not just about the nature that we are born with. No one can really say, I can't help it, that's just the way I am. Self-control can be learnt, and this is part of Peter's point in our chapter, isn't it? He writes about possessing self-control and these other character qualities in increasing measure. It's not as if you can say, I have self-control, I don't. It's about having more of these things. It's about growth. So what difference does the Holy Spirit make? Uh, big reveal coming up. You're, you're, about to see, uh, you're about to see what Deirdre and Charles look like. Just bracing you for it. So, using Roger Federer as an example, in his racket-smashing, arcade game-addictive phase, was heavily influenced by his limbic system, by Deirdre, indicated by that strong red line. Not all the time, of course, but more than he was happy with. The Roger Federer we know was a person of much greater self-control. He hadn't... He'd learned to apply his prefrontal cortex to check his impulses, to let Charles have a say, and to regulate his natural tendencies, to follow Charles's longer-term aspirations in order to achieve his goals. And boy, did he achieve his goals. But when the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life, he instructs Charles the prefrontal cortex, with divine wisdom through the scriptures, through the godly advice of friends, through revelation. And he empowers 
Charles to interrupt Deirdre so that Charles can have his say. And he inspires Charles with a vision of life as it was intended to be. The future that awaits the believer in Christ. Now, it's not game over. Ashley can ignore this new Charles. Ashley can still follow Deirdre's lead because to give in to desire is to give in to the way of least resistance. But with an instructed, with an instructed, empowered, and inspired Charles, and with a re-educated Deirdre, as we mentioned earlier, Ashley is equipped to live a fruitful spiritual life. And Ashley can now say, along with Peter, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who calls us by his own glory and goodness. So let me recap. Self-control is important because without it, lives can be destroyed or at the very least, our goals can be sabotaged. It's difficult because we all have a Deirdre desire clamoring to be satisfied without giving Charles, our checking system, a chance to interfere. But self-control is possible. It's not easy. We have to make every effort. 2 Peter 1 verse 5 again. We have to make every effort. It's not easy. But self-control is within our reach. We begin with faith in response to God's grace. We draw on hope and the promise of a glory to be revealed. We're spurred on as God works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And we work with God for our desires to be changed. We grow in our awareness of our personal weaknesses and the contexts, the people, the places, the states where we are vulnerable so that we can be on our guard, avoiding those contexts where we can. And we submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit who instructs, empowers and inspires us, who gives us everything we need. There's so much more that can be said about this and the other areas we are looking at over this series. But if we want to be effective and productive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are willing to make every effort to add these things to our faith, then we have enough to be going on with. And God will help us. To him be the glory. Amen.